Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is December 11th, 2012, and my guest is Lisa Turner of Laughing Stock Farm, an organic farm just outside of Freeport, Maine. Lisa, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you. Our topic for today is organic farming, and we'll probably get in a little bit about uh, the buy local movement toward the end. Lisa, tell us about your farm. We have been doing this for 16 years. It started very, very small. It was just me home with the kids. It was probably about a quarter acre initially just to see if it would work. At this point, we grow about 10 acres of vegetables. Because we're organic, we also grow... We keep some of the land in cover crops, so you like build the soil and then rotate through that. So that's about another five acres. There's about an acre of peonies that we sell as cut flowers and then um, six greenhouses that we grow in year-round. So in the summer, they're tomatoes and peppers, and in the winter, they're um, like mescaline greens and arugula that uh, we heat with used cooking oil. We we heat the greenhouses with used cooking oil. So that's what what we do, and then we sell it to, we do a um, CFA, which is Community Supported Agriculture is what it stands for. So it's like people buy a share ahead of time, and then they come to the farm and get whatever's ready that week for a period of time. And we also sell to local restaurants. And how does your business divide up among between the, the community part and the restaurant part? It's about half and half. So my wife is a big fan of of CSA. She is a member of a local um, growing group here, here in Maryland. And it doesn't provide all of our produce. It's just something she likes to do. She likes to go pick it out. One of the things that for people who don't um, – who are not members of that kind of program, ex- explain how that how it works. So I show up – I show up – do I come to your farm? Are you, you with come the, to, well, other farmers? You can come to the farm or we're like 25 minutes from Portland, which is the biggest city in Maine. And uh, it's kind of funny because like if you live in Freeport, you very well may commute to Portland every day. But if you live in Portland, it seems like forever to come out to Freeport. Sure. So for them, we take um, we take like an entire setup that would look like a like a stand at a farmer's market and set that all up so they can get their stuff in Portland. And you have your choice of where you go. Usually people come and there's like a bag made up with whatever was ready this week and you take your bag. We do it a little different where we give people choices. So there's, um, you come in and there's the board written up and it says, uh, okay, there were a lot of green beans this week. So you have to take a pound of green beans and then pick 10 out of the following choices. You know, a pound of tomatoes, a pound of broccoli, quarter pound of mescaline greens, a head of lettuce, whatever. And you can double up on things unless we're short on them. It'll say one pick only. So you're coming back every single week to the same farm and you're getting the bag of vegetables that may or may not be everything that you want. It, it, 
like the amount of vegetables people eat is amazingly variable. We've got families of four where two families split a share, and we've got families of four where they buy two shares uh-huh. for their own family. Sure. So, so here, what's strange about it is that – and, of course, what's interesting about it is it's different every every week or certainly every month as new things come into season, and it's kind of uh, – there's a certain uh, novelty about that. But what's strange is that if something comes into season that, that we love in our family, uh, whatever it might be, uh, in our at our farm, the one we, that my wife goes to, and I, I have been to it at least once, um, you can't have more. You can't say, "Well, I really like these. I want, I want ten of these kind of tomatoes, or ten of these uh, kind of apples, or I want to eat green beans for three nights because these are so delicious." You kind of just right, and 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 that's a problem, and you know, or you know, here's your bag. You have to take radishes, and you don't and like you don't like radishes, <laughs> but there's your radishes. Um, so you need a you know, post. I think, you need a post. I think everybody pickup. has some vegetables that they're not as fond of as others, even sure. if you like almost all of them. So that's why we've gone to this choice system. Because then you're also, like, you're planning it for this average person, and not a single one of your members is that average person. Right. So everyone's a little bit disappointed as well as being a little happy every week. But is it a so cultural... So we went to this choice system in hopes that it would make more people happy more of the time. Yeah, but is it a cultural thing? I mean, I don't... It, why not just do this strange thing we do in the rest of the economy called put a price on it. Just say green beans are so much this week and apples are so much this week and tomatoes. Why do you think the CSA movement uh, has this uh, socialist aspect to it, right? This sort of we're all sharing in the crop. There's something inspiring and and nice about that, that we all get a little bit of everything, uh, even the stuff we don't like. But uh, it's interesting that you don't just sell it. Um. And it, so there's different ways to sell local produce. If I went to a farmer's market, I would be simply selling it. We do also encourage people to just come to the pickup time as a farm stand and buy it. But some people really want to have that longer term connection. Yep. And if you're going to give me money ahead of time, you're getting more in your share than what I charge at the farm stand. And then we also have pick your own flowers for the CSA members so they can, it's about 10 or 12 weeks in the summer that the annual flowers are ready and they can just go out and pick whatever they want of those. So um, some of the concept is that you're getting more for your money. Um, right, you're giving up. Like sure, straight up more volume of product. Yeah, you're giving up some choice, but you get you get more in total. Right, and then if you want to feel that you've got that connection with people, some people are more committed to that by having paid the money up front. I mean, it's nice for me because my business is a startup business every single year. Sure. That's how a vegetable farm works. So then I have capital money in the beginning that people pay in. So, you know, it certainly works better for me. And a lot of people understand that and they want to have a farm in their community. For sure. So Now, uh, talk about the restaurant side. Uh, how many different, roughly, how many different restaurants do you supply to, and, and what are, what's the pattern of their purchases, and how is that different from your uh, individual sales? Um, it's more in the summer. It's about a dozen places in the summer. It's a little less in the winter because there's places that, you know, we're on the coast of Maine, so there's places that close in the winter. Um, 
And, yeah, their buying pattern is really different because, like, if you go to a restaurant, you're probably going to have a salad and then whatever entree you have, whereas people don't necessarily have a salad at home every night. So there's a whole lot more salad-type greens that are sold to the restaurants than go out in the CSA share. And there's some different products that... um like broccoli rob I can sell to the restaurants. The some of the CSA people like it but they're not they're not as familiar with it. Um colored carrots, like the the carrots that come in shades from like white through orange to purple. The CSA people, some of them will like it for a novelty, but not all of them. The heirloom tomatoes, you know, I mean the flavors are so amazing, I kinda of push them on the CSA people. But the restaurants know that they like those and, you know, they're, they're a lot more, um, they want the cachet of the really different looking stuff and plain old people kind of want the same thing that they've always seen. <laughs> sure. Now, do you ever have trouble supplying those restaurants with what they want? Do they ever come to you and you, and you just don't have the, the quality at that, that particular week or, and you just have or to the say quantity? no? Oh yeah, absolutely. Like that, that happens every year because it, rained too much and you couldn't plant in time or it rained too much and it ruined something or um, more people ordered something than you were expecting. You know, like you go and talk to them and I'll go talk to them all in January and try and get an idea of if anything has changed much, uh, where they're, what they're expecting for next year. Uh, but yeah, it's, it, it's really variable and it just comes from what we make and we have to sell everything that we make to make money at this, we can't ha- grow excess and throw it out. So they just know that happens, and it's part of the it's part of the tacit agreement is that I will try and grow what you want. You're not going to guarantee you're going to buy it from me, and I'm not going to guarantee that I have it. Yeah, sure. Now, on the individual side, uh, to pick a very different f- produce experience. Uh, we recently tried Peapod, which is a home delivery service that a oh yeah, which a large chain operates. And of course, one of the issues there is, you know, when I order, uh, when I go to the store myself, and this is a, a luxury, of course, in America. But in the old days, you, you got a bag of oranges and you took the bag or you did, you bought a bag or you didn't, or you got a bushel of apples, you took it or you didn't. Now, most of us actually in the grocery store, we pick out the apples and oranges that we like. The way they look, the way they feel, we touch them. Sometimes we're sampling them. Uh, they're offered, you know, free of charge in the grocery store, and we pick the ones we like. And uh, of course, sometimes they don't taste as good as we hope when we get home. But there's a lot of literally individual choice of which piece of produce I take. But when I go to Peapod, this delivery service, you know, they, I order two pounds of apples. I might get some ones I don't really like so much. I wouldn't have picked out, and they have to make a decision. Do I, you know, this guy's already paid for it. Uh, obviously, they want me to be happy. They want me to order again. But they have, so do they, do they give me the best ones, the okay ones? Do they slip in a few okay ones? What they think is the best is not, not what you what think I, is the exactly. best. Exactly. So but in your case, if I come to your uh, – or let's talk about the other CSA. Um, is it What's the stand for again? Community sharing agriculture? Community supported agriculture. Community supported agriculture. So if I go to the, one of these places where I get a bag, I show up. They've put in a nice medley of, of stuff, right? Some radishes. I might not like radishes, but they put in radishes, tomatoes, lettuce, fruit, et cetera. 
And I get home and I go, oh, these, these aren't so good. And as you just said, sometimes weather, bad luck, you get a crop that's not quite up to your standards and you're, you're disappointed in it. Uh, what do you do then? Uh, do you lower – normally in a store would maybe lower its price, but you're not in that same kind of market. Uh, how does that work? Do you ever throw stuff away because you just don't think it's worth selling? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, you definitely throw stuff out that's not worth – that's not worth growing, not worth selling. Um, I mean, it's, and like when I train the help every year, it's like, yeah, there's stuff you'd take in your house as a gardener and use, but what we want to give, there's, there's a difference between that and stuff that you would give someone money for. Yeah. So what we want the CSA people to see and the restaurants obviously is stuff that people would give money for. Yeah. Um, so what, what we do, and there, so like 2009 was a phenomenally rainy year early on. And there was not very much stuff for several weeks when normally we would have stuff. So what we did was we gave less then and we made it up later on. And we had a poor uh, restaurant year because we had to pull food out of the restaurant side to give to the CSA people because they'd already paid for it. Right. And the restaurants so that, went and bought it somewhere else. The restaurant went and bought it somewhere else, yes. So let's talk about the organic aspect of your business. Um, what does that mean formally and how does it work? So um, about 12 years ago or so, um, I, I like to say the federal government took the word organic by eminent domain. Um, you're not allowed to use the word organic to describe your produce, your products. Um, if you... If you sell under 5,000 a year total, you can. Or, uh, if you're over 5,000, you have to certify through the National Organic Program. So, that's a subset of the USDA, and then they accredit various agencies around the country to be the certifier. So, I have to fill out paperwork and say that I'm, I mean, fundamentally, it's about using naturally derived materials, so not petroleum-based fertilizers, pesticides, whatever. Absolutely, we fertilize. People will say like, oh, you don't fertilize. Well, you better hope I fertilize because the crops aren't going to continue to come year after year if I'm not adding some kind of nutrition to the soil. Or, oh, you don't spray. Yes, we do spray. We do get pests, and we spray for them. We spray things that are biological um, in nature, um, hopefully less harmful, although honestly they're not all less harmful. Personally, we choose not to spray those things because we have these, you know, 20-year-old kids here all summer long that have to touch the stuff to pick it, and I have a lot of concern for them. Um, but, But the organic is based on derivation. So you go through and it gets into in incredible minutia, like everything. Um, and you fill out your paperwork and mail it in and they say, yes, this is okay, or you can't do that. And then someone comes in and inspects you to make sure that you, that everything on the paperwork is what the farm looks like. And then you're certified and you can use the word organic in your advertising. So from USDA's point of view, it's a marketing program. Why do you say that? What do you mean? Uh, because I can market my stuff as organic 
whereas someone else who has not gone through the program cannot mark it as organic. So from USDA's perspective, it's it's about marketing. Gotcha. It's kind of interesting because your average organic farmer does not see it as marketing. They see it as a way of life. Right. And are you in that group? Um, I'm not going to use – I know enough about the chemicals that I have no interest in using them, primarily for worker safety as much as anything else. I mean, my kids grew up working on the farm – we hand harvest everything. Somebody touches every single thing that comes off the farm. And the thought of that having been my kids or somebody else's kids, no. So I'm, I'm not there. Just a naive question. Uh, you said that if something's petroleum-based, uh, it's not going to be organic. Uh, isn't petroleum a natural product? Is it a yeah, com- well, and, you know, organic chemistry, yeah, it's C's, H's, and O's, yes. But that's not what they mean. Okay. Oh. So, so- so what does that rule so out? Non-synthetic, yeah. What's, it, it, what's important? And they have their, I don't know. If you look things up in the dictionary, sometimes they don't mean the same as what people yeah, in you. an industry think it means. I hear you. But so if I'm a non-organic farm, small or large, what am I using that you're not using typically? Is there a typical um, thing? Okay, so on fertility, we're growing called green manure crops. So I will grow field pea or oats or winter rye or something and then turn it back into the soil and um, like legumes like peas um, will take nitrogen out of the air and fix it into the soil. So I'm gaining nitrogen that way. I'm, um, I'm building the soil in doing that. So I get the roots go down and they pull things up from depth. Um, they'll pull phosphorus out of, you know, well below where the plant of a um, tomato might go. So you're getting more fertility that way, or I'm adding things that are, um, you know, like like you've probably spread lime on your lawn, which is crushed limestone. There's rock phosphate and colloidal phosphate and green sand and all these other kind of rock powders that have higher levels of phosphorus or potassium or whatever. Or there's stuff like blood meal, bone meal, feather meal, um, oh, uh, alfalfa meal, things like that, that I would add for fertility. If I were a conventional farmer, I would be adding, um, like urea fertilizer that's, um, made from, well, again, they're taking the nitrogen out of the air, but they're using natural gas to get there. Um, so, so the, the fertility is different. I'm also adding a lot of, Stuff that is probably not measured, um, whereas they're only adding a certain amount of NPK and maybe some boron and copper or, or certain things. I'm adding a, a biological mix of things. Then when it comes to pesticides, uh, well, I go to conferences where there'll be um, both organic and conventional farmers and some there'll be talks and there's something you can learn from everybody, so you can go to one that a conventional farmer gives, and you may learn a lot of interesting stuff about varieties or cultural practices or whatever, and then they get into what they spray. And I've been astonished at the things that are considered to be diseases that I didn't even know was a disease. Like, like oh, those lettuce plants that I see, like, five out of a thousand that look a certain way, that's a disease that somebody else sprays 
for. So there's an incredible amount of different sprays. I mean, the goal of organic is that you're growing healthy crops that then don't get diseases. There's a lot of plant diseases that are based on um, nutrient deficiencies. So you want to get the full nutrient picture in there so you have healthy plants and don't have the disease problem. And do you get those those five out of a thousand and just throw them away? Yeah, five out of a thousand. Like I can't imagine spending the time to spray for it, let alone paying for a chemical to do it. So, But I think that because I've added this broad-spectrum mix of fertility, I think I may be getting plants that are less likely to have that. And I'm also not only growing lettuce, so I'm moving things around so different things use different nutrients. And um, I think having the mix also helps what we do, um, you know, to just, Use less pesticides. So in my grocery, my big non-community-supported uh, agricultural grocery, my big uh, chain grocery. Regular grocery store, yeah. yeah. My, my Harris Teeter or, or um, giant uh, supermarket, um, they sell both. They sell organic and non-organic. And I, as, you, as you said, it's a marketing device for them, obviously. They are uh, – I think a lot of people who shop – there who buy organic assume it's quote healthier. Um, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if we know or could, can know that it's true. But there's been a claim in recent years that the demand for for organic has gotten so large that that the large farms have basically taken away some of the um, the reality of the organic. They found ways to keep the organic label, but maybe not live up to the the promise of it. Do you think that's true? Is that something that you know about or see? I know that if I buy organic carrots in my local grocery store or local health food store that have come from a distance, they don't, from a large agricultural state in the West, for example, <laughs> um, they don't have the flavor that my carrots do. I think that some of the flavors are developed from having this broad spectrum of nutrients. It's the things that you don't know that it needs that make it have the variation. And I think that I have probably evolved to like things that taste better, probably because they're better for me. You know, if you, if you take out like sugar and some other refined stuff, I think that I probably like a sweeter carrot because it's probably better for me. So, um, you know, and there's science to the sweetness too. It's not just subjective taste. Um, so yeah, I don't think that I don't think it's as good as what I can do. I don't think you can manage 10,000 acres of carrots or, you know, I don't know that they do that much, 1,000 acres of carrots as as effectively as I can manage my 10 acres of mixed vegetables. The taste certainly would say that they don't. And this is an issue, you know, that I think of price and um, and quality, assuming you're right, that, the, that most customers could tell the difference between your lo- – locally grown small batch vegetables versus a large factory farm coming from a long way away. And I don't know how much of the taste differences travel as plus the nutrient issue that you're talking about. It's probably a little bit of both, but um, if, if we want to, you know, the, the jargon word is scale. If we want to scale organic farming or local farming to, to, to feed the American people, we're going to have to face that trade off because 
it's just uh, it would be a lot more expensive if everybody wanted to eat their vegetables in the way that you raise them, I assume. We try and keep the prices reasonable. I mean, you can buy a head of lettuce from me all summer for the same price that you can go to our large grocery store and buy a head of conventional lettuce. For my husband and I, it is definitely a focus that people should be able to afford it, but, um, you know, not everybody's going to choose to afford it ever anyway. I mean, when I first started, I felt guilty that I couldn't take this to everyone, and then I thought, you know, if everybody gave up cable TV, they could easily afford to buy my vegetables for the summer. <laughs> they would have money to spare. They're not going to give up cable TV. No, they're not. So they're going to make a choice. A value, what is valuable to them. And so I don't have to be poor to provide the low, I'm not selling the lowest possible cost thing. I'm selling something of more value and some people will find value in it and pay for it. And some people won't find value and some people just won't have the money and I'm not going to fix that. Yeah. I understand. Now let's talk about your, let's talk about your day. Um, if, if, what do you do? What's life like there on the farm? Uh, okay, so you're, you're, summer day. Um, probably get up around 5, check the weather. See how the prediction has changed since the last time I checked, which was when I went to bed. Um, and it will have changed. Because everything changes depending on what, what whatever you're going to do for the day is going to be different depending on what the weather is. Then... My husband and I, we'll have a plan for the week. My husband and I will talk about what we thought we were going to get done yesterday that didn't get done because it never all gets done. Um, What absolutely has to get done uh, today and then how the people that we have and the tractors and the truck and we we actually use um, three other properties in our town besides ours. So we've got a move the tractor around to different locations and haul stuff here and there. Um, so what the logistics are of everything. And that can take a while. And then, you know, well, when are we going to get this done if we do these things today? So it's there's a lot of just discussing how we're going to get the work done. Uh, the Most of the help shows up at 7. We, we started using apprentices this year because we've, Finally, we're able to purchase housing. And um, so they, they live across the street from us, and they come over at 7. And, you know, as when the year starts, I'm giving them a lot of training. Later in the year, I can say, here, these are the things you need to go work on, and, and this is our picture of where we're headed. Um, and then we've got a couple of summer kids that usually show up around 8, and they'll work with the apprentices, with the kind of the apprentices telling them what to do. Um, the first thing you got to do is harvest stuff because the uh, the stuff like um, the, the vegetables suck up water overnight. It's cooler. They get um, more, it's called turgor pressure, but there's like more rigidity to like a lettuce leaf first thing in the morning than there would be if it's hot out and, you know, by the time you get to 1 o'clock in the afternoon, if you cut that, it's going to look wilty just from the moment you cut it. So you've got to get everything harvested early, washed, 
we've got a big walk-in cooler. We get things in so that we can cool it down, and that helps um, preserve some of the quality. Um, and that'll take us easily till noon most days. So you're, you're, you're just getting stuff ready to go. Two days a week we go deliver to the restaurant, so there's a big push to get those orders packed and somebody will go deliver. Um, three weekdays plus Saturday, you could come pick your your farm share up here. So somebody's got to get that ready. There's two days that we transport stuff to the off-site locations in Portland, so somebody has to get that ready. So people are kind of peeling off to go do some of these things. And then in the afternoon, we try and get some project done, like we're going to transplant the lettuce today, or we've got to weed the bed of carrots. And then whoever isn't doing the, the sales portion of it is working on doing that. We get done around 5 or 5.30, and there's not a whole lot of energy left. Yeah, I bet. Um, most of the help doesn't work on the weekend. They, they rotate having to do the farm stand on a Saturday. And then Ralph and I do whatever didn't get done, plus paperwork, plus planning over the weekend. And I try really hard not to work at least one weekend day because if you work seven days, it means you're going to work 12 days. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, I, I know about that. Yeah. So, yeah. So what do you like about it? What's fun? Uh, What's I like satisfying? being outside. I mean, it's definitely like I can be outside every single day. People who work in offices are like, oh, wow, it's going to be nice this weekend. Like, I don't have any pressure about a nice day because there's going to be another nice day soon that I'll be outside. So I really love that. Um, I like working for myself, the thought of going to work for someone else at this point. I mean, it's not like you can do whatever you want. Obviously, you have to keep the clients happy uh, and you have to keep the help happy and and all that. But um, it's definitely a different dynamic than having a job. Um, and I like the puzzle of it. Like, it's it's not a... It's not a business where you're going to make a lot of money, but the puzzle is how do I do this and make enough money to have a reasonable life? What worked? What didn't? What can we do more of because it made money? What do we need to do less of and it's still okay? How do we change things? What kind of equipment can we use? Are there ways that we're dealing with the help that, you know, we could change? Like, and you get to redo it every year. There's a new start, so that's both good, good and bad, because you got to retrain people. But if you didn't like how it worked last year, you can start over again really easily. So what's what's a crisis? What goes wrong that is like nightmare? Ah, uh, oh God! Well, when the um, when the power goes out in the winter, that's unfortunate because we've got we're growing greens. In greenhouses, so the greenhouse is like two sheets of plastic is basically the difference between 35 degrees inside and 10 below outside. Mm-hmm. So the power goes out. You've got to go. We've got the, a generator, but you've got to hook the tractor up. The tractor is like the engine for the generator, and then the generator just makes the electricity. So you got to go out in the middle of the night and hook up the tractor, and there's no light, and it's cold, and that that's a crisis. 
Um, I don't know. There's there's things breaking. The tractors breaking is a crisis, and it just has to get dealt with. My husband ends up getting saddled with most of the crises because he fixes things. So it's it's definitely that's more of a burden on him. I, I've got to figure out how to deal with what we have to get done without that. Our barn burned down in 2003. That's a crisis that kind of went on for a while. Um, What'd you do? But oh. Well, lucky for me, I did the same thing I did every day, which is go out and the product is in the field, go cut it and pack it. But I did it um, on autopilot. He had to figure out how to fix it. It was a lot harder for him. And we built a new barn and um, fought with the insurance company because the fine print is... Uh, never what you expect, and yeah. nobody ever reads their insurance policy. And even if you did, you wouldn't. I don't think you'd understand it. Yeah. And that was 2003, and we still do this, so it's okay. Do you ever have crises with your workers that put you in a bind? Excuse me. Do you ever have crises with your workers that put you in a bind, where you've got to scramble and? Well, we we talk about that when they start. <laughs> we. Um, everybody has stuff that they need a day off for. You've got doctor's appointments. You've got, you know, uh, somebody's kid. cousin's wedding you have to go to. So as soon as you know you have to do something, put it on the calendar so we know and we can work around it. And other people will have will have to work maybe a little longer if you're taking a day off because we don't have a huge crew. Um, but they'll do that for you. But... You know, having a doctor's appointment that's scheduled should not be a crisis. We should have known that was coming. So we have to explain what a, what a crisis really is. Um, it's a lot better with the help living across the street because now we don't have car problems. Sure. They just walk across the street. Um, yeah, by the way, we try not to have crises with the, the workers. Sometimes it happens, but we try really hard to kind of frame that to minimize it. By the way, through the magic of uh, of Google Maps, I can see the entrance to your farm uh, oh. <laughs> online, which is pretty cool. I can see your sign in the distance, sort of down the way a little bit. Uh, it's kind of a cool thing. Um, it's an amazing, uh, amazing world we live in. Let's let's talk about. Um, well, first, I had a quick question: How is it possible to to grow stuff in the winter in greenhouses in Maine? How is that economically feasible? Seems that seems nuts, but it works. It, it does. Well, we started back when uh, oil cost eighty five cents a gallon. Remember that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you, we're growing. We're not growing tomatoes. Tomatoes you have to eat really warm. They're like a Mediterranean crop by, you know, by descent, and uh, so you've got to heat it to like seventy to get tomatoes. We're growing. Um, mustard family things mostly that are happier at cold temperatures. So they'll grow if it's 35 at night, you know, you're, you're keeping the quality and then it's a greenhouse. So on a sunny day, it gets warm in there. Um, I mean, by the beginning of March, you got to open the sides during the day because it gets so hot. Um, so they're kind of working toward what the average daily temperature is. So we're not heating that much, um, and so we started 
the oil was 85 cents a gallon, and my husband's a mechanical engineer by training and uh, has always had this, you know, looking for the holy grail of free energy and um, found a company that made a boiler. It was a boiler that basically was supposed to burn used automotive oil, and they reconfigured it to burn uh, used cooking oil. <laughs> so um, we actually tried the first one. We got a grant from the Maine Department of Agriculture to demonstrate new technology that was not currently being used in Maine, and that paid for about 40% of the project. We put in this boiler, and the first one didn't work. It burned like 99% of the, the oil, but that meant if for every 100 gallons that you burn, you've got a gallon of black goo in the bottom of the boiler. So then we had this other company. So, so we published this on our website because we had to write a report to the Department of Ag about what this was. So we published it on our website, and we said this boiler doesn't work, um, which really made that company angry with us, but it was true. And uh, then we had this other company show up, just came, drove into the dooryard one day and like, oh, well, we saw that that one didn't work. We've got one and we'd like you to try it. I was like, don't even talk to me. Like, go talk to my husband. I don't want to hear about this. So they actually gave us their the boiler. They, theirs had been used for automotive um, uh, oil and they were reconfiguring it to work with the used cooking oil. They gave us the boiler. They gave us the metal bestest chimney, which was a really expensive chimney, um, and said, here, you use it. You're doing the field trial for us, and it works great. So we collect used cooking oil from the restaurants in Freeport, and uh, then we – all you have to do is, like, heat it up to separate the water out of it. You don't have to filter it or anything, and then that's – most of the energy that we use, we you do have to have backup of everything because it's not quite as reliable as number two or gas. Um, and that worked great for until recently. What happened? Um, well, the federal government, in its infinite wisdom, decided to help renewable energy. So they give these. They give a couple of different kinds of credits. There's some that's like a blender's credit. So if you're mixing the renewable with a fossil fuel, you can get a credit. Or they sell renewable energy credits. There's like a market. And if you're making like millions of gallons of biodiesel or something, um, which we don't make biodiesel, we just burn the oil straight. But if you're, if you're using millions of gallons of this stuff, then a broker will sell your renewable energy credits to like an oil company who buys it as offsets for their fossil fuel usage. But we're so small that we don't really meet, the, and, and it's been, you know, just for transportation fuels, not for what we not for stationary heating, which is stunning that transportation fuel is somehow different. Like you're still using fossil fuels if that's the goal. It, it just boggles the mind sometimes. So they get these credits and we don't. So that's driven the price of used cooking oil up. When we started, um, which was like 2002, 2003, all the restaurants paid. It was like a monthly fee, like your trash pickup fee, um, to get rid of the used cooking oil. So we went in and we said, well, 
we'll just take it for free. So you win, we win, everybody gets a little bit out of this. Well, at this point, the uh, rendering companies are paying $1.50 a gallon for used cooking oil from a restaurant. So now, you know, it's still better than, I don't know what heating oil is today, three forty nine a gallon or something. So $1.50 is still better than that, and we don't actually have to do that much work to pick it up and and heat it to get it to separate. So it's still worth it, but um was a whole lot better before the government decided to help. Now, is it uh, – are your prices going to have to go up for your winter produce? Yeah. Yep, they are. Sure. Because, I, I mean, it's a lot of money. The, these, the big greenhouse is um, – it's about 7,500 square feet. So – and there's two sheets of plastic between you and 10 below. The, the burners burn like three gallons an hour in – when it's cold. Yeah. So you, you blow through a lot of stuff. I mean, we, we don't have the money. We, we can't cover that. So yeah, it went up a little this year. So these greenhouses, you say two sheets of plastic. They're not glass. They're not glass. Okay. Cool. Interesting. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about the government. Uh, there's the U.S. Department of Agriculture and then there's Maine has its own state agricultural department. Um, yep. How do they? Um, how do those two work? Let's start with the feds. How, how do they affect your life? Um, you just gave one example, but that's an indirect example. Something they did, federal government did something over here, and it ended up, not surprisingly, having a consequence over there, and and that's not uncommon. But just in the farm business generally, uh, they certify organic. That's one thing they do. They certify organic. They um, so there's different departments within USDA. One of them is NRCS, the Natural Resource Conservation Service. So, and that used to be the Soil Conservation Service, and it kind of started like during or or after the Dust Bowl. Yep. And the goal was to get farmers to use practices that would retain the soil better should something like that ever happen again. And that, you know, the Dust Bowl I think was a very weird. Um, uh, climate time. It wasn't. It weren't. It wasn't the usual amount of rainfall. Like things changed, but the way they had managed things had been fine until that happened. So they wanted. So you know, it made sense at the time. Well, now it's come to where um, they want to. Now they wanted. They want us to do um, uh, mulching, which is fine, and contour plowing, which is fine. So they'll pay you for these practices. So you like sign a contract and you agree that I'll do this and this and this. And, you know, their push is, well, it's stuff that you're doing anyway. So we're just going to give you money for stuff that you're doing anyway. And um, it's really weird. Oh, we want to get you some money. We want to get you some money. It's like the language that they use is, is really odd because I'm not, I don't really want to have to get a government check every year to do what I do anyway. Um, but Strange I think some idea. of it is <laughs> USDA gives so much money to the big commodity growers and the dairy people that this is to keep everybody happy as if everybody gets a little bit of the payola, then we'll all shut up. Yeah. That's that's harsh, but that's my analysis of it. I hear you. So, so I don't know. 
we actually tried to participate that in, in that, and it was so badly managed that we gave up on it. Um, so that's that's one of the things they do. Um, we could get like if we, if we were bigger, we could have um, crop insurance. So, like all the guys in you know the Midwest that had such a dry year this year, they all had crop insurance. So they're not they're going to be able to have enough money to come back and farm next year. Well, it doesn't work for us because we have such a wide variety of crops, and the way that they calculate the payments, it, like I can't ever imagine it working for us. So, like that's a program that just is kind of dysfunctional from my point of view. So we could get loans from them, but we don't actually need to do that. You know, I think that that's probably a fairly reasonable um, thing. Then they've got the um, rural development is another subset. And so they come around, they try and get you to do energy projects. Well, like I said, my husband's a mechanical engineer. I'm a civil engineer. When it comes to that kind of, somebody telling you, oh, you need to have solar panels or heat pumps or whatever, like we can kind of smell the snake oil that gets sold, um, but they'll send somebody with no technical background that's going to tell us what we should do. I mean, farms are not wealthy businesses by and large. It's not a good place to come and convince somebody to do some energy project that isn't going to save them money or at least have them break even. Um, so how is that considered help? So that's, <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't do commodity farming. I don't know if some of these protections are more important there. It probably is because it's more risky because you're only growing one thing. But at our scale, I, I think we'd be better off um, without some of the help. Of course, if you didn't have that insurance, you probably wouldn't just grow one thing. So it's kind of a... Simul- uh, yeah, kind of leads you into, yeah. well, I have the safety. You know, and, and commodities is weird. Like if soy is going for a lot of money because there's biodiesel, then everybody's going to grow soy and then the price will drop next year. It's very much what's good for an individual is bad when the whole group does it. I don't really know how you manage around that as a society. Well, I think if we left it alone a little bit, it'd probably figure it out. I just looked up uh, the Department of Agriculture's budget. It's a modest $145 billion annual um, expenditure. Uh, oh, so that's, that doesn't even count. Well, <laughs> even I think it's even I think that's real money. Uh, but yeah, but it, you're right. In a certain dimension, uh, you know, if we got rid of it, it would only cr- close the the federal deficit this year by ten, roughly fifteen percent. So you could argue it's just pocket change. Um, but I suspect some of the things it does uh, are not particularly helpful either. As as you point out, some of them may help some people, maybe not others. Um, let's talk about it's a, the picking winners and losers. What? It's picking winners yeah. and losers. Like, you know, I've heard you talk about that a lot and it, it absolutely, these things absolutely do. Or, you know, one of the programs they'll give, um, like one person in each county gets a free greenhouse. Like, how do you pick that? How do what? you pick one farm <laughs> in each county who gets to have a free greenhouse? 
And how is that fair to everybody else in the state who didn't get the free greenhouse? It's just bizarre. Have you, have you applied for a free greenhouse? No. No, because we're not the kind of farm that they like. See, we've been doing it for 16 years, so we're, we're not new farmers and there's definitely a, um, they definitely want to help the young new farmers more, which like, okay, we've had more time to build capital and have more stuff. And so maybe that's fair. I don't know. Um, and they definitely prefer the land trust farms. What, so what is, in, what, and that's in our county, and I'm not sure that's the same in every county. What is a land trust in, farm? So um, the land trusts, um, it's, they've got them in by town, by region, by watershed, by main coast, like whatever. Um, they want to purchase the development rights to a an undeveloped property. Um, so, like, you can still have your house there, but you can't develop the land, you can't sell the land to become uh, house lots or industry or anything else. The land is going to stay the way the land is. So the, the land trust will buy development rights. Sometimes they'll outright buy the entire property and the development rights on it. And then, like a lot of them around here, they like to have a farm, like, oh, there's this this is the last real farm in our town and we don't want to lose this, so we're going to buy it and we'll get some new young farmer in to farm it. And uh, so they're the ones that get the money from NRCS in our county, although I don't know that that's true everywhere. So we just don't even bother to try for that because you can see who gets them and it's the same people. Some people have gotten more than one of them or or it's, even just people who don't own their land, it's kind of a weird thing. Um, and so then, you know, free competition, like we're competing against someone who generally they're given really favorable rents, like far, far below what the market value of the land would be. If they need to fix the barn, they have a fundraiser because the 501c3 arm of this owns the barn and will fix the barn. You know, we had to, like, pay the money to fix the barn, all that the insurance didn't cover out of selling more heads of lettuce. They have a fundraiser and say, could you give us some money? Um, Not that, I mean, some people gave us some money, but not like a fundraiser. Well, but the difference difference is is, is the people who who gave you money gave you a dollar and you got a dollar. The people who gave the Land Trust Farm Barn Project a dollar – they had to give seventy cents, eighty cents, because I and other American taxpayers made up the difference through the deductibility of that charitable contribution. So that made it easier for them to find friends and to get money. It is a little bizarre that we don't tax charitable contributions because it's kind of like deciding what money is okay without having voted on it. Yeah, it's a strange thing. It is a strange thing. Yeah, most of it's um, I think okay, but it's not. It's one of my more of, of all the things the government does, ha- having charitable deductions, having charity be deductibles is not the worst. But I, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's, that's faint praise, but that's the best I can do. Um, let's talk about your employees because when we set up this interview, you told me some interesting things about their attitudes. There's a certain romance about working 
on an organic farm. Um, but having talked to you now for almost an hour, uh, it's clear you're a capitalist. Uh, you, you've yes, got to, I am. You've got to cover your costs. <laughs> uh, you're not running a charity, uh, like the case we were just talking about. You've got to, as you said, sell enough heads of lettuce to cover the cost of that tractor and the, and the cooking oil and all the other things that you do and your employees. But sometimes you, you pointed out to me, you get some different attitudes. Yeah. So, um, so we hire some high school kids and they're lovely people. Uh, but usually it's one of their first jobs. Like maybe they mowed the lawn for their neighbor or maybe they did some babysitting, but by and large, we're their first job. And, uh, so everything else that's happened in their life has happened for their benefit. They've gone to summer camp that was for their benefit. They've gone to school that was for their benefit. You know, we as parents certainly do everything that we can to benefit our children. And then they come to me and, you know, there's a lot of programs on go work on a farm on the summer, in the summer. And that's not what this is. This is you're going to work and at the end of the week I'm going to give you money and I expect that because you are here I will make more money. And that's a concept that I've had to explain to them. And and it it comes in really hard because it, you know, and I, and I have to say, well, why would I have you here if I wasn't going to end up with more money? <laughs> what? Why on earth would I have you show up every day? Yeah, and they, then they kind they of think? start to get that this should be a mutually beneficial arrangement, not just that I'm I shouldn't come out even because you know I think of like capitalism as me making money for the aggravation of having you here. <laughs> um, but um, and then we get the college kids who are you know they they've kind of gotten that concept sometimes a little better. But then we'll say, well, what do you, you know, what do you want to do when you're done with college? And they say, oh, well, I want to work for a nonprofit. And that, that one makes me angry because it's like, first it's like, well, nonprofit, like that could be a hospital, that could be a, like you haven't thought about this anymore. It could be a, a land trust, it could be anything. Nonprofit is huge. Um, you don't have any more direction than that you want to work for a nonprofit. Um, but also like there's I mean they're definitely telling me that profit is bad. So I say, well, so you know, look around at all this stuff you see, the tractors, the greenhouses, the walking cooler, like all this stuff. Okay. Ralph and I could have taken that money and even if we'd put it in the bank in a savings account, we'd have earned like a percent or something, like even now. But we've done this, and we're risking that. We may not; it may not work out. We may not um, make any money from this. We may not get back the money we put in. Don't we deserve a little more than what we could get in a bank by doing something safe? And they say, "Oh, well, yeah, of course you do." So, well, that's profit. <laughs> you know, that's all profit is. And then, oh, and then you know, the light dawns. But they come with no idea about how capitalism works, even though capitalism is the economic system of our country. Or kind more, of that. More or less. <laughs> more, more or less. Some places less. We claim that it is, right? Yeah, we claim some, it. Some places less, some places more. Well, that story, you know, talking about the, 
the student who wants to work for a, quote, nonprofit, uh, I think in the back of their mind is the idea that, because I'll be helping people as if what you're doing isn't. That's the even harsher way to think about it. Well, or that profit is bad. And then I say, no, you know, and then I, I go on to profit isn't bad. Greed is bad. And there's greedy nonprofits and there's greedy individuals and greedy corporations. And there's also all of those that aren't. And greed is bad. I'm totally with you on that. Like, you can't have everything. Somebody else has to have some of it. But it does, it's not about whether or not it's profit or not profit. Are you going to do this uh, for the rest of your life? Probably. And I, uh, I think I'm too far in to get out of it now. <laughs> assuming you can keep that profit going anyway. And, right. And you're, you told me off air you have kids who are college age. Will any of them, do you think, come into your business? I don't know. I think the oldest uh, is pretty much never going to have anything to do with it. Um, my son, who's the, he's the middle one, um, he really enjoys the work. I don't think that he sees how he would fit in. You know, if your kids come to work for you, you're not going to treat them like like you did when they were 12 working for you. Sure. If they come when they're in their 20s, you're going to start and they want to be in the business. You're going to develop a an area of expertise that they sure. can take and feel ownership in. And I think, so my son's 22 and then my youngest is 19. She just went to college this year and she likes it too. Um, I don't think they can see how they could fit into that. I think they want to go be their own people for a while. So they may or may not. Um, the, the oldest, definitely not. The other two, Probably not as much likelihood as a coin toss landing my way, but they might. Do you want them to? I want them to be happy. I just don't care. I, don't, I, you know, if they don't want to do this, they shouldn't do it. My dad was a math teacher. I didn't want to do that. Oh, that makes sense. So your your um, the other thought I had about your employees and their attitudes is that there's a big movement. Uh, as you may know, to encourage high schools to teach economics. And there's all kinds of curricular development. That, that hasn't gotten here yet. Yeah, so well, <laughs> I'm going well, to suggest otherwise. That, it, maybe it is there because uh, the way economics is taught often in high school is uh, to prepare people for the advanced placement exam in economics, which is a test. At least half of it is a test on whether you can master Keynesian economics um, my son is taking um, an AP economics class right now, and I was looking at some of the practice AP exams with him. And one of them basically, one of the questions basically was, uh, if you can increase exports holding everything else constant, is that good or bad? It turns out it's great. Uh, you get richer and the society prospers. And so the lesson is our goal should be to increase exports, uh, which is a bizarre uh, thing when you think about it. How would you do that hold everything else constant? What policy would increase exports without doing other things that you haven't analyzed? And I'm looking at this question, and I'm assuming I'm getting it wrong. I mean there's no way the answer could be what it looks like. So I call up a, uh, a friend of mine who teaches AP economics, and he says, no, that's the right answer. He says, I tell my students that that's uh, wrong, but they have to learn it for the exam. So oh this, my God. <laughs> this is what – and by the way, that's not unusual um, – uh, I think this is a common phenomenon among many AP economics teachers 
who love economics, they, they teach to the test because that's their job. Uh, and then they explain to the students a richer model of how to think about economic activity um, and the world. But what strikes me about listening to you, which is, I think, quite spectacular, is that instead of taking that AP economics class, they should come work for you for the summer or the fall, and they'd learn real economics. And I don't mean what often people people often think about finance and, and how to run a business, but how the system works, that you got to cover your costs or – you go out of business, and then nobody has a job. At least that's the way it's supposed to work in a capitalist they system. They talk about sustainable ag, and we say the first rule of sustainability is i got to make enough money this year to do it again next year, or it's game over. Yeah. And nobody wants to hear that part of sustainable. They want to hear that we're using you know, the natural products, and we're doing those direct sales and that kind of thing, but they don't really like to – I don't know. America is, to some degree, uncomfortable thinking about money. Yeah, well, you need – yeah, they want to hear about the windmill. They don't want to hear about the right. That's what sustainable exactly. is. You got a windmill. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah that's there's a romance there. That's um, and you, you you know you're what you're doing is is has a certain romance about it. Um, and I think those employees or would be employees sometimes are trying to tap into that, and that's something nice about it. But it'd be great if they understood what pays the bills. And a lot of them come out at the end of the summer still liking it, and and they'll come back an, a next year. Um, but they come back with a clearer vision of what it really is that we're doing. Well, they're um, old. They're older you know, and wiser. Also, that it's boring to sit and weed carrots all afternoon. <laughs> so there's a lot of reality that yeah. shows up here. Well, but they come back older and wiser because they've learned something about economics indirectly, at least. Right. Yep. My guest today has been Lisa Turner. Lisa, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks. It was fun. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.